Welcome to MV Talks, a podcast by Maya Vandenberg Lawyers in Canberra. MV Talks is an in-depth look at the legal issues facing individuals, business and government. This is your host, Susan Blaine. Welcome to MV Talks. I'm your host, Susan Blaine, and today we have Michelle Gold and Eleanor Heffernan to talk about some of the complexities lawyers face when setting up a will for blended families. Ladies, thanks for joining me. Uh, before we get into it, uh, Michelle, can I understand a little bit about your background and why you are speaking today? Yes, Susan, thank you. I came to Maya Vandenberg in 2007. I'm now an associate here. I went into estate planning and estate disputes because of a personal situation. I lost both my parents when I was young. After my mum died, my dad changed his will. After he changed his will, he remarried and then didn't update. So when he passed away, we found that his will was invalid and that his estate would pass by intestacy. It caused issues, I won't go into it too, too deeply, but what it did for me was it made me realise even more that I wanted to apply my law degree to helping people in similar situations to me. I guess I understand the journey on a personal and professional level and I'd like to offer assistance like I would have to my brother and sister. Fantastic. Very compelling. Uh, Eleanor, how about you? Why, why did you choose this area of law? I'm sure many were available to you at uni. Oh, well, um, I really, really enjoyed um, wills and estates and succession planning at uni. I went to uni in um, ANU in Canberra. Um, I found it fascinating and really interesting, a lot more interesting than Australian public law and constitutional law, which <laughs> for anyone that doesn't do law is very dull. Um and I come from a family um, family farm down in Juni, and in that um, area and in most other regional areas in Australia, there's um, a big need for um, talking about farming succession planning and planning for the future and where the farm is going to go and who's going to take over. And I'm incredibly passionate about the agricultural industry, and if I wasn't a lawyer, I'd love to be a farmer, but too many people in my family, so I got to do the next best thing, which was try and help out um, as many people as I can um, in all areas of um, life in planning for the future and making sure that what they've prepared and planned their whole life and built up is passed on to the next generation and isn't just lost. Infinitely qualified. Thank you for joining me, ladies. So before we begin, begin Michelle, uh, what is a blended family and how prevalent are they? Susan, I think that the best explanation that I can give for a blended family is two families which have come together which have children. And the prevalence that Ellie and I see here increases as age increases. In the 20s, not so much. It's once you get into your late 30s, 40s, that it becomes more prevalent. I'd say that about in that age group, we'd have at least 50% of blended families. Wow, that's quite significant. I had no idea it was that prevalent. Um, so let's start with one of the basic questions. What should a family member do when a loved one dies? Uh, so the first thing that obviously you have to do is you know, attend the funeral and you go to the funeral director home. And um, one of the first steps that you'll have to do is apply for a death certificate. And a death certificate is really important um, in estate 
the estate process afterwards is because um, once you've got a will, there's someone that's appointed as an executor and the executor is the person that basically runs and looks after your estate after you die. So the executor has a responsibility um, to firstly, if there is a will, find it. Um, it will usually be with uh, the law firm that wrote it or they may have taken it with them um, if they went and wrote them themselves. So how do I find out which law firm has a copy of my family's will? Is that, is that a, a difficult process? How do, how do people approach that situation where it could have been done years ago and as a family member yeah. I'm not aware? Well, if, hopefully it will, there will be a copy in the personal documents of the deceased. So I suggest start looking in that bundle of documents that everyone seems to have. So check it home first? Check it home first, see if you can find it. And on the front cover, it will usually say the law firm's name and then ring that number if there's a number or Google the law firm and um, say, have you got the will? This person's died. We need to find the original will. Um, if you can't find a copy um, and you have no indication, maybe look through to see if there are any other indications. Say they bought a house, they will usually stick with the law firm that they've used previously. So try and find other documents where the person may have used um, that another law firm. A law firm for another yeah, service. Exactly. So, yeah. Okay. And so if, that's a clue. And yeah, yeah. And if you still if you still can't find any other clues, um, it may be that they haven't got a will. And if they don't have a will, then there are certain steps that you have to do. So if you cannot find a will in any of the documents, you can't find any indication and you don't aware of one, um, then there's other steps that we have to take. And further to that as well, once you've examined the personal papers, what you can do is start looking in the local paper because before we go to the court to get the will approved as the, the last will, you have to advertise your intention to do so. So just keep an eye on the local paper as well. So when you say the local paper, is it the local paper in the area that the deceased passed away or their primary place of residence? Yeah. Or is it local paper where so you in, live? In the ACT, which is yep. most of our clients, when they come in, um, we have to put a notice in the Canberra Times and that says, you know, I, the executor, am intending to apply for probate. Um, which we can talk about later what probate is um, and that's how the notice comes in. So it's the Canberra Times basically in right. ACT. Different in every state and depending where you live but when that comes up we can advise which paper it'll be. Okay so to, to be clear for my for my purposes mm -hmm. uh, would that, uh, for my understanding I should say, would that happen maybe a couple of weeks after the person's passed away or even sooner? Yeah, um, look, it can happen straight away. You can come in, you know, the day after, but usually it tends to be that you grieve and go to the funeral and then when you're ready and everyone in the family is ready um, and if you've located the will and you know where it is, then you would give us a call and we would start the process. Um, sometimes we do need to wait a little bit longer for the death certificate, but you can still come in and get the process rolling before you've got the death certificate and we can get going. That, that's that's terrifically informative, thank you. Uh, one of the things that some of my friends have asked me, just in the course of knowing that I work at a law firm, they assume I know the answer to a lot of these questions and I haven't been able to answer them this one, so here's my chance to get the question answered by the experts. What happens to superannuation and insurance benefits after someone dies? Um, well, firstly, the biggest myth that I think needs to be busted is that everyone thinks that if you've written a will saying, I give my estate to my husband, Jerry, um, 
it doesn't necessarily mean that your insurance and super will be going to that to Jerry. Um, so just because you have a will doesn't mean your super and insurance flows into the estate. So with super um, often and insurance, often it is outside of the estate, which means that the will will deals with everything else like your house, your cash, um, and all your other personal debts and assets. But with, for example, let's just start with super. With super, um, if you've done, it depends on what type of super you own. Um, but if you've done a binding death nomination, because there's only certain people that you can give your super to. Um, and you need to do a binding death nomination for some of them, and some of those are lap, they lapse every three years, others are non uh, others are binding um, and don't lapse. It depends on the super trust, and we will have to um, explain. We can go through and explain it for you. It, it sounds yeah. very personal, so it applies to a to personal depending. situation, yeah. and, and that's where that word that I love so much, depends, yeah. comes up. And it, I know it's complicated. I'm asking you generic questions about situations that people often experience and, and the answer often is it applies very specifically in this circumstance. So thanks yes. for answering those tricky questions. And just one thing I'd also like to note there, Susan, while we're there, is that generally speaking, super doesn't form a part of the estate. So when Ellie was speaking about the will and the estate being divided as per the will, you've just got to keep that in mind. It usually follows the nominations made. And if there is no nomination, if you haven't done one and you've died without doing a binding death nomination, it'll be the trustee's discretion. Right, mm. right. Very interesting. Glad I asked the question. And one of the things that comes up for my age group and in dinner party conversations is this notion of a $25 will kit available at any news agency. Um, my Vandenberg uh, sells the advice that comes in and around preparing a will, why would I come in and pay you um, the cost of your time as a lawyer to prepare a will for me when I can get it for what seems to be $25? Susan, you're not only paying for the, the advice that we can give you, you're also paying for the understanding, I guess, that we have of succession planning, how the estate will be distributed following death. And an example I have of that, one of my most hotly contended litigated matters was in relation to a home-drawn will, what the client thought they had written in the will. It's not how the will is actually read when an estate is distributed. And it took a good few years and a lot of money to contest that. So you might be paying $25 now, but you can be paying up to $100,000 plus later to fight it out. Wow, so like many things in life, just because it's cheap up front doesn't mean it's it's going to be cost effective in the long run. That's exactly right. Yeah, I agree. I'm not a fan um, of will kits. I've had one recently where um, the person had left quite a significant amount of money to one of um, his friends and he'd named the person in the will, so he wrote it just by hand. Um, he'd named the person but used a nickname, which obviously no one else knew, um, and then named uh, the person with an address that ended up being the wrong address. And, you know, we spent so much money trying to find this person. We've had advertisements out, we've searched everywhere, and in the end, we couldn't find that person. No one in his family knew who he was, who she was. We couldn't find her at all, and the money's gone. It just, it, it, we can't give it to us, so Gosh. what a waste. <laughs> Gosh. 
And then what also happens as well is that you've got your executor who holds the burden of either having to hold that money on trust for the rest of their life in case the beneficiary shows up or investing in a trustee company and then also keeping an eye on it there. So are, are you saying they'd have to pay for the setup of a trust? What they would do is usually that? is to contact a professional trustee to organise that, but mm-hmm. there's all your time and expense to do that as well. Mm. When if you just come to us, then we would know straight away that this is an issue. We've got to make sure that the beneficiaries are identifiable um, to make sure that it's passed on exactly how you want it to be passed on. So I'm guessing you do the 100-point form of identification or something similar is that right what we do when we see the clients is is that we go through obviously um, the who the beneficiaries are going to be and we also we always ask the question of what is their full name is that how it appears on their birth certificate if that question had been asked or they had have known that then the nickname wouldn't have been written on the will right okay so rookie error there yep. and uh, you've probably curtailed my 25 dollar purchase so thanks ladies and just because you know your beneficiary's name doesn't mean you can still write it because <laughs> there everyone gets it wrong <laughs> okay I, I, i'll pick up i'll pick up the gist <laughs> so ellie while we've got you on a roll there what is probate and how does it apply you mentioned it before yeah so i um deal with in addition to the um, estate planning i deal with probate and so probate is after someone dies you don't always have to get probate but um, in some circumstances, and in most circumstances, you need to go and get a grant of probate. And that is basically the Supreme Court saying, yes, this is the last valid will, and they put a big stamp on it, and then as soon as the stamp is on the will, you can then go and act as the executor and call in all the money and start distributing the estate. Uh-huh. Okay. What happens in a typical appointment when someone comes in to do a will? Uh, so, firstly, we'll... You know, meet you in and we'll have a big discussion about your circumstances and that involves you know all of your assets and all of your liabilities and your debts and how you know you might you might be involved in a trust you might be involved in a company so it's not just oh I've got seven grand I want to give seven grand in my bank account to X my daughter there's a lot of planning that needs to be involved in estate planning um, so we go through all of your circumstances and who's in your family um, if there's anyone on the side if um, there's members from previous relationships uh, and then we go through basically what you would like to do and how you would like your legacy to be left and then we help you structure your estate. Fantastic, thanks. And I, I, I really appreciate that answer because I think that will help inform people being prepared when they come in for appointments. Now this podcast um, topic-wise was designed to deal with um, the topic of blended families. I'm particularly interested in some um, giving you some questions around that area. Michelle, can you tell me, is it fair to say estates are more complicated when families are blended? The answer to that generally is yes, Susan, and that would remain the same answer even if the family does get along because when you come with the blended family, you obviously have two sets of assets coming in. As Ellie was saying, you could have some that are involved in companies, some that are involved in trusts, and you've got to consider how that's all going to be distributed, how interests of children from first relationships are taken care of, and it also comes down to as well as managing the relationships within those families and the expectations of who is to receive what and not just assuming what will happen right if a blended family member owes money on their passing what happens to their debt 
Uh, so, Susan, when someone dies, and this doesn't matter if they're a blended family or single, um, the executor, so who you've appointed to act for your estate, is in charge of making sure that all of your debts are paid off. And they are paid from the assets that you also leave, so the money that you've got left in your accounts, etc. Um, and if there isn't enough assets to pay off your debts, then those debts will then just die with you, basically. So the executor and your other um, members are never pay other family members are never personally liable to pay off your debts. So don't stress. Right. <laughs> that, that is a great relief. I, and I actually didn't know the answer to that. So thank you. Unless they've guaranteed them. Yeah. Then there's a difference. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to be it's providing awesome <laughs> quasi-legal <laughs> advice on the weekends at dinner parties now, um, which I seriously won't. Um, another question many people ask is, when, they, when there's a situation that they perceive one of the couple, couples, usually their parent, bought more money than the other to the relationship, am I, as a sibling of that parent, going to have to share with my stepbrothers and stepsisters? If your stepbrother or sister makes a claim in the ACT, I will limit it to that, Susan, because there's different laws in each state and territory and we don't have enough time to canvas that today. But if your stepbrother or sister were to make a claim in the ACT, then the answer is that yes, they are eligible, but they have to be maintained by their step-parent immediately before their death. That sounds like a legal term. What's maintained mean? Usually it means financially, so it could mean anything like your stepbrother lives in the house with you and your parent. It could mean that they don't actually live within the household, but they're at uni and their uni fees, books and accommodation are being paid for. Okay, do they have to be paid for on a regular basis or is it ad hoc? Generally on a regular basis, ad hoc, there's more argument there that it's just a gift or it's just to help in times of financial struggle. But if it's a regular, say, payment towards rent and regular payments towards um, your uni tuition, then yes, you'd have more chance. Right. If you're a sibling of a blended family, either from the first marriage or the second marriage, and you're estranged from the family, how can you make a claim on the estate? Usually, as we were saying, as Ellie was saying before, you look in the paper to find the advertisement to see when probate is going to be applied for. Because if you're a stranger, obviously you wouldn't have as great access to the will. What you would do is you go see your lawyer about it, and they would run through your chances of success with you. In saying a stranger, I would assume that it is an adult. As a stepchild, I would be very wary about making the claim unless you've received full and proper advice from a specialist because the courts these days aren't being as um, liberal as they were with the gifts, particularly if you haven't been maintained by that by that step-parent. Your chances are, are, are greatly reduced. Diminished, yeah, sure. So how do the courts decide who gets what? What they do is is that they look at all the evidence that's been put before it, and what I mean by that is that everybody has to put in an affidavit which sets out their position, how they're related, how much money they've got, what they've done for the deceased, um, things like that. Then the court balances it in each circumstance and there is no hard and fast rule. So what I might get in my situation might differ from, from Ellie's. Understood, understood. So could the outcome be different depending on where the court is? So we're in the ACT. Would, would, would your answer to that question actually be different to that of 
say if we resided, if we being our family, resided in New South Wales or perhaps Queensland, etc.? Uh, yes, it would, Susan. And the reason for that is is that all the acts are different all over Australia, depending on where you come from. For example, in New South Wales, a stepchild isn't expressly noted in the act, so they'd have to jump through a lot more hoops to even be considered in the first place eligible to make the claim. Right. Uh, as the spouse in a de facto relationship, how could I find out if the will we made together is the only will? Like, how can I be aware that the one that we just prepared together not long ago is the one that the courts are going to rely on. What if there's one from ages ago or whether that one from ages ago might have some instructions that supersede the one that I think I made recently? I know that's a a complicated question, but I I guess this is where it gets a bit prickly. And that's a um, prevalent question. It comes up a lot. And the short answer is that whatever the latest will is, assuming that they have capacity to enter into the will, um, will be the will that they're taking into consideration. So if there was a will from 10 years ago that says I give everything to my kids and nothing to my second wife, um, then that's not going to be taken into consideration. It'll be the will that was last written. So if you're on your deathbed and you write a will, that's the one that's going to be counted. Um, And in terms of if you are trying to locate a will, uh, like if you want to know if that will is going to be the one that happens right up until the death, um, the best thing that I would advise to do is to have the conversation, is to talk to your family and talk to your spouse to be like, you know, have we updated our will? Because obviously with wills, you should update it every four years. And one of the biggest things is is that people don't realise that in the ACT, for example, if once you um, remarry, any wills that you previously made are revoked straight away, as soon as you get married. Wow. Yeah. So it's always a good idea to refresh. So as soon as you get remarried or even if you get a divorce, consider remaking your will. Which further makes Michelle's good point about the jurisdictions being quite different in that if I was in New South Wales, the courts would uh, approach our circumstances somewhat differently to that in the ACT because there are different laws that govern each of those areas. That's correct. All right. Sounding like a lawyer getting there. (laughs) Um, If we live together... Do I automatically get half? I feel like this is something I would have tapped into Google. That's a good question, Susan. It's actually one that I I do get asked quite a bit. The passing comment is or that, you know, people have been told that now I live with somebody, it could be, you know, six months and they're going to get half. The the answer to that is that, no, that's not an automatic, automatic thing. The court looks at how long you've been together, who's contributed, what, um, one of the things that it would look at, though, is if, say, you've lived together for 12 months and you have a child together and you've been left out of the will, that you'd have more chance of getting something there. But generally speaking, it's not a hard and fast rule of we live together, I'm going to get half. Right. So um, further to that question, are children of our blended family entitled to a greater share than children of the first marriage or stepchildren? When a claim is made, the court would look, and I'm focusing on the ACT here, and I'm assuming that the stepchild has been maintained immediately before death so can make the claim, is that the court will consider all the children against each other. And if you are um, the sibling of somebody and they make a claim and you are well off and an able-bodied adult, then your chance of success is greatly reduced on that front. Right, there's there's another one I didn't know. Thank you. <laughs> Are grandchildren entitled to an inheritance? 
In the ACT, uh, we have different rules once again uh, than what we would have in relation to New South Wales. And what happens in the ACT is, is that if a grandchild is predeceased by their parent, which is the biological child of the grandparent, then they can make a claim or if one of their parents has died, either or, but they weren't being maintained by their parents, then they're also eligible to make a claim. It is so complicated. Mm -hmm. You have well convinced me of staying away from the news agency, so good (laughs) job. Um, Okay, so we move on to a different subject area, which I'm guessing is your area of expertise, particularly, Michelle, and that is when things can't be agreed upon, with the executor and there is an estate that's uh, brewing away in terms of a discussion between family members, there's a lot of money at stake. The options start pointing towards litigation or resolution before court. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit more about that area? How much does it cost to litigate an estate when it's in dispute? That varies greatly, but if it goes to a hearing, you're looking at least 50000 to plus. $100,000 might be a better ballpark there, and that's on just a straight family provisions claim once you put all your evidence together and you have a court hearing. If you've got other elements in there where people are saying that the will was you know, forced or that the person didn't have the mental capacity to make the will, it becomes a lot more expensive very quickly. Okay, so as a layperson... Uh, that actually tells me there needs to be a bit more money at stake before it warrants litigating. Is that correct? That, as a general rule of thumb, could be said to be yes. But in because we do a lot of New South Wales work as well, you've just you've also got to be careful. I won't go into it too far now. But in New South Wales assets, which aren't actually in your personal name, can be found to be in a state asset and transferred in. So a lot of people will have um, chance their luck in relation to that because they think that the costs are going to come out of the estate. Okay. Uh, what sorts of things make litigation more expensive? It comes down to, and stating the obvious, but a lot of the time it's the relationships and how strained, I guess, those are. If you also have somebody who wants to fight over over every over every issue rather than try and you know mediate some of it and negotiate resolutions the length of the hearing if it's a one day is always going to be a lot cheaper than a week or two hearing and how many other applications you know intermediate points are, are discussed in the meantime so if your family's got an aggressor in it and that person is adamant that they want to dispute and take it down to the line you're in for a big battle in terms of litigation and there's just no way to wrap it up. That's correct. And it can also come down to who you instruct as your lawyer as well, which is why at Maya Vandenberg we have the approach that if you can settle it, you should, because you're going to save yourself a lot of money now than what you'd be spending, I guess, on us and barristers to go to a fully contested hearing. Right. If you know it's going to end up in court... What can you do to make sure that the proceeds of the estate don't get spent too much on legal fees? The answer to that is is that you can't make that guarantee, but what you can do is you can try and minimise your costs, I guess, and as going back to what I was saying before, it comes down to a lot the attitude of the parties and the lawyers if you're willing to enter into a mediation early and actually negotiate on a genuine basis then obviously your costs are going to be a lot less than somebody who wants to take issue with every single point and take it to a full hearing so in a common sense way it's in everyone's interest to 
resolved before going to court. But if you need to go to court, that's what you need to do. It is, and it's not. It's not just the time of the monetary. It's the time on a personal level as well. So. So just furthering on from my question before, how can someone work out what an estate's worth and how much is too small an amount to litigate? And I know they're very big questions. I will restrict this to the ACT, Susan, because once again, there are different rules for different jurisdictions. Okay, thanks. And in the ACT, the way that the court looks at it is, is the estate is just what's in your personal name. If you are an eligible person, and the best way to describe that without going into it too far is a next of kin, or somebody named in the will. If you can't get a copy of the will, say from your step parent, then the best way to do is to look for that advertisement in the paper and a few weeks later apply to the court for a copy of the probate document. If you still can't get the inventory with that, then you can make applications to the court to get it. Right. Should most people work on a formula like this, and I've cooked this up myself, so you <laughs> feel free to tell me if it's wrong. If, an est- if I work out my parent, I add up their assets and I work out my parents' estate is worth, say, a million dollars. I've looked at their house, I've looked at all the bits and pieces that you mentioned before, count towards the value of an estate, and we've got five kids. Is it fair for me to arrive at a conclusion mathematically that each of us will get about 200000 so it'll be divided five ways and therefore we'll all get the same amount? That is a good question and that is the general understanding that people come to me with, that there's five of us so we get $200,000 each or my step-parent only bought in $100,000, why are they getting the full million dollars or the 800000 and the balance that my parent bought in should be divided by five. The way that the court looks at it, once again, is is that they look at the length of durations of the relationship, how old the children are. If you're a stepchild and, once again, you're being maintained immediately before death, they just look at your age and what your future earning capacity is, your health, as compared to your step-parent. The court can't do what it thinks is fair. It has to apply the test which has been set by the Act. Right. Um that that will be a wake-up call to a lot of people, no doubt. Um, should a family member challenge a will thinking that the estate will pay their legal bill regardless of the outcome? Because I, I hear a lot of um, litigation jockeys are out there thinking, I'm going to get what I deserve and mum and dad's estate will pay for it and I don't need to worry about what it costs. Historically, that was the position of the court and a lot of people were... Um, making a claim because that was the belief that your costs had come out of the estate and a lot of the time it did but of recent times the court's moving away from that for one to stop the people who are having the claim on that basis particularly too when you're looking at you know your blended families and you've got the evidence from multiple sources and different relationships and whether or not they they get along or not so now the court and a lot of the time on appeals as well is um, upholding the original judgment or giving less or not giving costs which means that you have to pay your own costs and if you have run a case which is doomed to fail then having to pay the estate's costs one thing that people also don't realize is is that even when you do get your costs you never get a hundred percent you could end up with sixty percent of what you paid so you could have paid a hundred thousand and you get back sixty and you've got to wear the other forty yourself things I'd rather know about in advance but I'm sure a crystal ball might help you from time to time yes (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, my last couple of questions. 
if you know an estate's been paid out to a beneficiary and you want to dispute that decision, you don't agree with it at any level whatsoever, how long do you have to make that call? That depends on when the estate was distributed. If you've distributed it within 12 months from the date of death and you haven't put in a notice to distribute and done all the other things that are required of you, then it could be possible that the executor is liable, particularly when you have a blended family. If you have, say, a stepchild in in this circumstance who's aggrieved by the distribution, then you're going to find, because of the highly charged emotive situation, that they're more likely, in my experience as well, to pursue that than they would against, say, their own parent because they could just work that out amongst themselves. And on that note, you should um, know that if you are a... um someone that you feel like you want to make a claim against someone's will, you have in the ACT six months from when probate is granted to make a claim. And if you don't make it within that, then you have to explain to the court and get leave, which is like a legal term from the court to say why you haven't been able to make the claim within the six months. So there is a time frame. So you can't go, oh, well, I'll wait three years before I make a claim. You've got to do it in the time frame. And just for my benefit, how, how do I find out when probate's granted again? You contact the Supreme Court and you can just ask them. You can say that I am a next of kin and then you put in an application to get a copy of it. It's a public record. So any person from the public can contact the Supreme Court generally, and ask that question? Generally, you have to be able to prove that you're a next of kin because it is a public record and you can say it's for the purpose of probate. If you can't get it that way, then you can make an actual application to the court to be heard by a judge. Another easy way is maybe if you're on speaking terms, say, with the executor to ask, has probate been granted? It's okay. a very simple way of doing it, but sometimes when they're disputed, they won't terms. tell them. <laughs> right, okay. So there's not always that happy no. solution. So there, there is some more distance that you, you can provide some distance between you and the family. If, if you're not getting on, you can go straight to the court yourself. Yes. Okay. But you will be asked to sort of provide Pre- evidence. Yeah. Okay. Ladies, you've obviously seen and heard lots of stories, good and bad, about estates. You knew I was going to ask this. What are the three things you'd recommend blended families do to stay out of court? Firstly, I would say have the conversation while you're alive. Um, the biggest thing is that don't leave your family members in the lurk and just be like, surprise, none of you are getting anything. Um, if that's how you want to draft up your will, have the conversation. Have the conversation with your kids from the first um, partner or the second partner. And that's what I find as well is, is especially in the blended um, families, if there is any angst, I guess, between the, the parents and the children, the stepchildren, is that they don't know what's going to happen and it's the not knowing which drives it. And when the will comes out and they haven't been left their share that they thought they only get by their parent has been left to the second uh, partner, then it can be emotively driven rather than looking at it more on a commercial basis to get it settled early. So what I'm, re- what I'm hearing here is the reading of the will should not be the first time they hear of this. If that's at all possible, yes. It depends what the relationship is like during life as well. Okay. Uh, Second point? Uh, I would say the second biggest one is, and this goes with everyone, don't assume that once you die, everyone will get along. You you might be the person holding that family together. You might be the glue. Yep, and it happens everywhere. Even in nuclear families, people can, relationships can fall apart. So... Don't just go, well, it's okay, my son knows that I have helped him along the way, it's fine, he won't make a claim. You don't know, so don't assume. 
I, I, that's very compelling. I think you ladies are wise beyond your years because of what you've seen. Um, I'd like to think people act on that advice particularly. And finally? Uh, third one, I would say probably get a, as much in writing as you can. So if there is something that you're making controversially, you um, can make what's called um, a statement and we can help um, you draft the statement as to say why you've left some people out of the will. Uh, and we can help you draft up for those reasons. And another one that we often see, and going back to what Ellie said, everyone gets along until the backbone of the family passes away, or and then you've got the stepchildren and the, the other parent trying to figure out who, who gets what, so to speak, is that if you gift your children money and you intend it to be a loan, to have that in writing, because a lot of the time, if not all of the time, the court will otherwise decide that that's a gift. So you might give one of your children $300,000, on a loan, on a handshake, and they change their mind after you die. Mm. I've seen that quite a few times. Have you indeed? Okay, ladies, this has been a most informative podcast and a terrific way for MV to delve into the world of podcasting. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and, and particularly to both of you for sharing a personal perspective. I think it makes it all the more compelling and I thank you for going out on a limb and doing that. Um, for the purposes of our listening audience, the podcast was produced in October 2016. I'm Susan Blaine and thank you for listening to MV Talks. Mm-hmm.